Now, as we dive into Ecclesiastes 10, I will say, maybe even as Javier was reading it, you can feel that it's a little bit weird, right? And I know all of Ecclesiastes is a little bit weird, but this chapter in particular, it feels a little out of sync with the things that have come before it and the things that have come after it. Uh, it can start to feel and is almost proverbial. They're like these little, you know, these little statements that feel disconnected from one another. And as it's being read, you're kind of like, I don't understand the flow of thinking. I don't know what the writer, like, what's he thinking of when he transitions from this thing about snake charming to what you do with a king who drinks too much in the morning. And it, it feels loose and disconnected. Um, and so sometimes when Ecclesiastes 10 gets taught, uh, the teachers will pivot and they'll go, yeah, this is just, he's sort of ramping down to the end of his thoughts and he's just kind of lumping together a bunch of random ideas that he wanted to make sure he crammed in there. I don't think that's true at all. And in fact, I don't think that what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is disconnected from the major themes of the book in any way. I think we can follow his line of thinking and it's actually very helpful and is in line with the things we've already seen and studied. If you haven't been part of the Ecclesiastes study all along, it may do you well to remember or to know for the first time that Kohelet, who uh, the, the author has, is writing in the framework of this teacher or this uh, gatherer of an assembly, the preacher, some people call it. And this Kohelet has seen all kinds of things and he's been all kinds of places and he's witnessed everything that you can possibly witness. And he says in the end, and after he's seen it all, his observation is that life is hevel or that life is meaningless. The word hevel means a mist or a vapor. Uh, in the end account, what he says is having seen everything and tried everything, I got to tell you, it's all futility. Or we've said life is bananas, right? Because it doesn't matter if you're good or bad. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter where you come from. We're all going to die and nobody's going to remember us. It's all just a waste of time is essentially what he's saying, right? So from that sentiment, uh, we do see he's been, he's been talking here in 10. We see that there's a line of thinking now where he starts to be sort of postulating on the difference between wisdom and folly or wisdom and foolishness. And in order to understand the line of thinking in 10, I think it's actually helpful to back up just a couple of verses to the end of nine, because you can see his train of thought. At the end of nine, he does affirm, and this is, this is new for Kohelet. A lot of times with Kohelet, he's not really affirming anything. He's kind of, he's kind of talking down about everything. But at the end of nine, he does affirm the value of wisdom. He says, wisdom is advantageous when it comes to winning a war. Wisdom can be advantageous in your life, but he does that with a caveat. Let's read it. This is uh, chapter nine of Ecclesiastes, verses 16 through 18. He says, I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The way in which Kohelet now is thinking and the way he's articulating is this, this thought for him that says, wisdom is a good thing, full stop, right? So if you're listening this morning, one of the things Kohelet says is that in his assessment and in his review of all things, he would say wisdom is better than foolishness, right? It's better. But he would say wisdom and foolishness are not weighted equally. So the reality is that you can have a ton of wisdom and yet it only takes one sinner to overthrow all the good work that the wisdom is doing. Now, now it's interesting because we get the idea of something small spoiling something large, right? He says in chapter 10, verse 1, and this is kind of a, a familiar idiom, although sometimes we use it in a different way. In 10.1, he continues this line of thinking and he says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. 
So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He's talking about the weight of folly compared to the weight of wisdom and honor. There can be wisdom and honor, but it gets outshined and outweighed and ultimately soiled by even just a little bit of foolishness. He says it's like if you have beautiful perfume, this beautiful ointment that's expensive and it's valuable, it only takes a few little teeny dead flies to make the whole thing stink. Now, I don't I don't know anything about how flies smell. Uh, so I asked Jeff Lilly, who is my friend who knows everything about bugs. I said, do flies stink? And he said, yes, they do. And so I saw one on the counter this week and I got down real close to sniff it. And to be honest, I couldn't smell anything. But he says that they smell bad, right? But you get the principle, right? It's a principle that we see used in other places in scripture. So for sure, when we, uh, when we read, for instance, we read James 2.10, right? James 2.10 is talking about the relative... Uh, the, the relative sin that becomes pervasive in our lives, even if we've lived a holy life up until that point. James 2.10 says this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. From the gospel standpoint, we understand that the reason we need a savior, the reason we need a redeemer, is that it doesn't matter how holy you live, it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do, it doesn't matter how many Bible verses you memorize or how many old ladies you walk across the street, you can do a bunch of good things, but if you've sinned at all, you are a sinner. And your, your relationship with God is broken, and, and you are separated from him, and will spend eternity separated from him, if not for the redeeming power of Christ. When it comes to the gospel message, we understand that a little sin spoils the whole batch. We were studying, uh, not too long ago, we were studying the idea that inside a church, if you've got, if you've got false teachers, that they are like yeast in the mix, right? And that you, they can, they can spread into the whole batch of the church if you don't, if you don't be careful to rid the church of false teaching, right? This is the same principle. He's saying wisdom is good, wisdom is valuable, but it doesn't matter how much wisdom or honor you have, a little bit of foolishness spoils the batch, spoils the batch. Now this is problematic for you and I, because we also recognize, I think it's interesting at the end of nine that he doesn't actually use the word folly or foolishness. He he talks about a sinner. Look with me again, if you will, at nine, Ecclesiastes 9, 18. He says, wisdom is better than weapons of war but one sinner destroys much good. He doesn't say one fool. He's equating the two together here. Well, we recognize that all of us are sinners. The Bible teaches that all of us have failed to glorify God, which is the thing we were built to do. We recognize that all of us are sinners. I think sometimes it's a little harder for us to recognize that all of us have moments of foolishness. We all have moments of folly. That no matter who you are, what your station in life, no matter where you've been, how much you've studied, how much money you make, that folly is going to be part of your life because we are broken people. And all of us are in that boat. So some of what he's saying is to remind us that no matter how much wisdom we pursue and the the temporary gains we might reap from that pursuit of wisdom, our folly and the folly of others will always outweigh that foolishness. So he says this in the first three verses of chapter 10. He says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, depending on your political affiliation in America, that verse might make you really happy, right? Or it might be a verse that you want to argue about. This isn't talking about politics. It's not talking about the way Americans talk about right and left. What it's saying is that wisdom and folly are diametrically opposed. That wisdom and folly don't mix together. And in fact, one goes one way and one goes the other. And they don't mix, right? And in fact, if folly is present, because it outweighs wisdom, it becomes evidential to anyone who looks, 
even from a distance at something that would otherwise be sort of seemingly meaningless. Look at verse 3. He says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So follow the line of thinking here from Kohelet. He's been talking about the hevel of all things, the futility of it all. He says, wisdom is helpful. Wisdom will help you win a battle. It will help you in certain circumstances. But it doesn't matter how much wisdom you've got, ultimately, because even a little bit of foolishness will make the whole thing stink. And there is no way to go both right and left with foolishness and wisdom. Once you've shown yourself to be a fool, it will be evident to everyone. Even when you're walking on the street doing something mundane, it will be evidentiary to other people that foolishness is present in your life. Well, part of that is because all of us have foolishness in our lives. But what he's saying is that it spoils the wisdom we may otherwise have pursued. I, uh, I don't think I've told this story before, but when I, was, uh, when I was 16, the first job I had after I turned 16 was working in a movie theater uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, you know, back in the day, they made the movie theater employees wear like those black vests and you put buttons all over your vest from like for the different movies that were coming out. So like, you know, Thelma and Louise or I don't know, I don't remember what all was coming out. But these buttons would come in these tiny little Ziploc bags. They were little like one inch square Ziploc bags. And one night late, I was working at the movie theater and my friends and I uh, were fooling around and one of my friends, Mike, he took some Sweet and Low from the coffee station and he put it in this little Ziploc bag and you can imagine what that looks like, right? A little Ziploc bag with white powder in it. It looked like drugs. Now, me and my friends were not drug users. I've never been a drug user. It's not even really like the circle I ran with, but we thought it was really funny at the movie theater late at night. We're like, hey, I got some drugs. You got some drugs. You want some drugs? Here's some drugs. You know, like it was stupid, admittedly. It was folly, foolishness. When that event was done, I put that, uh, I put that plastic bag of Sweet and Low in my pocket, the white shirt, Oxford shirt I was wearing under the vest, and I went home and I didn't think about it anymore until I got home the next day from school, and surprisingly, my mom was home early. My mom was a single mother, and she worked all the time. It was weird for her to be home when I got home. She was home. I walk in the door. She's sitting in the chair facing the front door, and she's sobbing. So my first thought is, oh, you got fired from your job. Like, I'm so sorry you lost your job, but God will give us a new job. Like, we'll be okay. Like, we'll be all right. And she's like, I didn't lose my job. I'm crying because you're on drugs. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not on drugs. Like I've, I've not even tried any drugs. Like I'm like, there's, I'm not at all. And she's like, I found drugs. Here's what happened. I came home late at night. I leaned down like a good son to kiss my mother good night, right? And that little bag of sweet and low fell out of my pocket onto her bedroom floor, which then when she got up in the morning, rather than grabbing it and coming to me and saying like, what is this? Answer. She instead got on the phone and called everyone we know. So she called my youth pastor. She called the pastor of the church. She called uh, my guidance counselor at school. She called every personal friend of our family who was a police officer. Uh... She called pretty much everybody in any authority position in our lives and was like, hey, would you please be praying for Darren because he's a drug user, right? So I get, home, I get home and she's crying and I'm like, I've never used drugs. That's not what that is. That's sweet and low. And she's like, why is it in the baggie? And I'm trying to explain it. It doesn't make sense. She pulls out a chart that she found that details like the top 10 outward signs of someone using methamphetamine. And I kid you not, I showed eight of those. And I never used drugs, but I like all these things. She's like, this is you, you're using drugs. 
And it took a long time. Let me tell you, it took a long time as a 16 year old for me to convince her that I had not used drugs, but I was just stupid, right? Like that's, that's the she, she knew it in other categories, but not in that one. Now I will tell you, interestingly, that sometimes still, like to this day, if I go to Phoenix to visit uh, my brother or my dad who live out there, if I go to Phoenix, I have in the last like six or seven years, I have bumped into my guidance counselor from high school. And when I see him, he goes, how are you? And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm almost 50. I got four kids. Like I've been married for almost 30 years. I'm a pastor of a church in California. He's like, so you overcame it. You know, I was like, I never had it. It was never a problem. That's nothing. I'm fine. I don't know anything about drugs, right? Here's the illustration, right? The illustration is a little bit of folly, a little bit of stupidness is recognizable by other people and it can become pervasive, right? It can be a thing that soils the batch. That is what he's illustrating. And what he's saying to us here as he continues is that it happens in a variety of different categories. So if you're thinking, well, foolishness only happens to people in a lowly state or it only happens to people that are poor. It only happens to, he he starts right out of the gate here in this line of thinking by saying, folly happens no matter what level of the social spectrum you're on. In fact, the king can be foolish. You think a king has a ton of wisdom? Sometimes he does things that are wrong. Here's what he says in verses four through seven. He says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. He says, the king gets mad at you or the leader gets mad at you. Don't storm off in a huff. Don't be impatient and storm away. Just remain calm, but don't say anything. Otherwise you just add more foolishness to the equation. He says, the king is mad. Stay in your place and remain calm, right? Do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. He says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. He says, I've actually seen folly done by the king, done by our leader. And here's the folly I've seen. Listen to it. He says in verse six, folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in the low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So he's got this observation about the king and he says, look, folly can seep into your life and spoil the batch no matter what station you are in life. He goes, I'll give you an example. I've seen a king who actually didn't honor rich people. He honored poor people. He He put poor people in a place, people who were foolish instead of rich. Now, this is an interesting thing he does because he's frustrated with the leadership. He'll say, I've seen princes walking on the ground and slaves were allowed to ride the horses. Can you believe it? This is ridiculous, right? The king is an idiot. He's letting slaves ride on the horse and the prince has to walk. Now we look at it and we go, wait a second. What is it you're frustrated about? Well, what he's frustrated about is that his perception of hierarchy is not being met. What he believes is that the rich are the wisest, right? That rich, by the very nature of being rich, they deserve to be honored. And if you're not rich, you should be in a lowly position. He believes that by being a prince, which happens because of birth order or because of winning a military campaign, if you're a prince, if you're a prince, you should get to ride on a horse and slaves shouldn't be allowed to do that. Well, I think someone who has that sentiment with regard to hierarchy, probably Kohelet, would have had a hard time on the night that Jesus, the king of the universe, knelt down to wash the feet of his disciples. I think that when Jesus, the king of the universe, knelt down to wash the feet of his disciples, Kohelet probably would have been like, this is folly. This is idiocy. The king of the universe doesn't wash people's feet. And interestingly, that's exactly what Peter said, right? You remember that situation in the room? Peter goes, you're not washing my feet because you're the rabbi and I'm just a follower and not going to happen. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And he goes, well, okay, then wash all of me. And Jesus is like, don't go crazy, right? 
what was happening there? Well, Peter's idea of hierarchy, Peter's idea of who should be honored and who should not be was being thrown uh, into upset. Kohelet says, kings can be idiots and I'll tell you how I know because one time I saw a slave walking and, or excuse me, I saw a prince walking and a slave riding. We would look at that and say, Kohelet, your perceptions of what is honorable or what is appropriate or what is wise and what is foolish are different than the perceptions of Jesus himself. So look at what this does. What it does is it shows us not only that sometimes kings can be fools, but sometimes in our perceptions of the actions of kings, we also demonstrate our own foolishness and our lack of knowledge. Does that make sense? Kohelet, the writer here, is saying, I've seen something evil and it's, it's backwards, but it's backwards even to what Jesus would have affirmed. So he's saying this happens at every station of life. It happens, uh, it happens all over. He, he says it even happens in the workplace, in things that might otherwise be mundane. Let's look at the next few verses. Look at me with you uh, at 8 through 11. He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Now, these four examples are mundane. He's not placing a moral value on any of these. There are other places in the Bible where it talks about someone who's digging a a pit for a trap, and he falls into his own trap, right? That's a moral statement. This isn't that. What he's saying here is, it might be your job to dig a hole. And sometimes in you just doing your regular job, which is being a hole digger, you're going to fall into that hole and break your leg. Sometimes if your job is just to be a quarryman and you're hewing stones, sometimes that's going to get you hurt. Sometimes chopping logs, if you're a lumberjack, is going to get you hurt. And it's a foolishness that doesn't have to do with your, your own actions or your own choices. It just has to do with the fact that the world we live in is broken. Sometimes the one who digs the pit falls into it. Sometimes a serpent bites somebody who's just trying to remodel their house. I hope that hasn't happened to you when you break through a wall, there's a snake in there. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. It says in verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. He says, if you're using a dull tool and you just keep working harder and harder and harder, you can still get the job done. But why are you doing that? It's because folly has seeped into your life, right? There's a faster way. There's a better way. And if you had wisdom, it would change it. But for many of us, we're just plugging away with a dull axe over and over and over because folly becomes pervasive. The last example he uses here in 11, he says, if the serpent bites more uh, before it is charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. I don't know how many snake charmers we've got here this morning. I'm sure there's a few, but... Uh, this one is a hard, it's kind of hard to figure out the proverb, right? Like what's this talking about with snake charmer? What he's saying is sometimes the thing you've decided to do actually hurts you or other people and there is no advantage. There is no payoff for you. One of the major themes of the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet has said again and again, hey, one of the things that's hevel or futility in the world is that you can work and work and work and sometimes there's no payoff for you, even though you deserve it. What he says here is if you're a snake charmer, sometimes the snake pops out and it bites you or your customer and then you don't get paid and you were just trying to do your thing, right? So he says, is wisdom helpful? Yes. Can wisdom make a difference? Absolutely. But folly outweighs wisdom and honor and folly is pervasive no matter what social class you're in, no no matter what your hierarchy system is, no matter what job you do, folly breaks in there. He goes on to talk about uh, folly seeping into the way we talk. He says this in verses 12 through 15. He says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, right? So if you're wise and you speak, there's a graciousness to that that will draw people and you win favor. But he says, the lips of a fool consume him. 
The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. He says, we all know that like, if you have some wisdom that you can share, that will gain you favor. And knowing that wisdom will gain you favor in your words makes you desire to talk a lot, hoping that sooner or later you'll land on something that impresses other people. But because we don't actually know all that much and because all of us are flawed and all are broken, sometimes what happens is that the fool gets consumed with the sound of his own voice. And sometimes that's harmless enough and it's just silly. But sometimes when a fool starts to talk and talk and talk and talk, all of that meaningless talk can actually turn into evil. It can turn into something that's damaging to that person or to other people, right? We've all seen it escalate to a place where people are talking and he says there's a, there's a futility for them, right? He says, a fool multiplies words, though no one knows what it's to be. He's talking about things he doesn't know. And ultimately, he becomes weary. Look at this in in 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he himself does not know the way to the city. We can all be in that spot where we become exhausted because in our foolishness, we think that multiplying words will gain us some sort of advantage. And we find out all of a sudden we're rambling on and on about things we don't actually even know. We're talking about things and, and the whole time we might fool other people. But the whole time, there's one person who's always aware that you don't know what you're talking about, and it's you, right? He says, there's a weariness to the lips of a fool, but that happens to all of us. We all feel the pressure sometimes to add more and more words, even in categories we don't know what we're talking about. And there's futility for us. There's meaninglessness for us, frustration and weariness. It happens, this foolishness becomes a greater weight, even in our words and in our language, He circles back here in these last few verses, 16 through 20, to thoughts about the monarchy. You can tell that the king is in his mind. Here's what he says in 16. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. We talked a few months ago about the fact that Ecclesiastes 10.19, if you take it out of context, can be a very dangerous verse, right? We were talking about the way we interpret scriptures and the fact that you can never just look at a phrase by itself. You always have to look about at what comes around it. When the Bible says money is the answer to everything, we want to be really careful, right? But what he's saying is, You're in bad shape if your king is immature and if he's selfish and if he throws parties in the day to satisfy his own self-indulgence. You're better off if you have a wise king that knows when to eat his bread and when to drink his wine and how to spend his money. It's not the wine and the bread and the money that are the problem. It's that you can have a king who maybe is immature or self-indulgent or you can have a king that's leaning towards utilizing all the things at his disposal towards strength. But there is no guarantee of those. He says... Happy are you when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the right time for strength and not for drunkenness. When they're not lazy through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. Money answers everything. And he says this in 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. He goes, you know, this, this, the weight of folly, he's like, you have to be even careful what you think. Because if you have an accusation against the leadership, if you have an accusation against the king or against the president or whatever it is, if you have an accusation against that person, you have to be careful because the birds will carry that back around, right? He doesn't literally mean birds, 
He's like, sooner or later, that sentiment will get around. He actually cautions us here, not, not just not to speak ill of people in leadership because of the damage that can happen, but he says, don't even think it, right? Because it changes the way you live. It changes the way you act. It, it will seep out of you and it will get carried back around. What he's saying throughout this entire chapter as he ramps here toward the end of this book, what he's saying again and again is that this folly, is, is, it's not as good as wisdom. Wisdom is better. But that folly spoils the wisdom and honor. That it has a greater weight and that even a little bit of it flies in the ointment can turn things south. Now, now for you and I, as we sit here, I, I sort of wonder if some of you are, are feeling discouraged. I think we can hear this and we can go, yeah, all of us are broken. All of us are flawed. This folly seeps into all of our lives. But I, I would give you a little bit of a caution. I, uh, I do find myself sometimes feeling the sentiment here of Kohelet in that I will occasionally hear myself saying things like, I'll give you an example. This week, I was, I was in the sort of final stages of prepping this message. And I was turning left out of my, uh, out of my neighborhood onto Brea Boulevard here. And if you, you know, Brea Boulevard, Boulevard south of Bastoncherry is basically like a steep hill, Right. And uh, as I'm getting ready to turn left out of my neighborhood, there is a guy coming south on Brea on one of those old plastic banana skateboards. You know what I'm talking about? No helmet. He's got his ear pods in. He's got his hands out like this. And he's, he's got to be going 65 miles an hour down the hill, right? And it's like he's going, the light turns green so I can turn left. But there's a car across from me that's going straight. And he almost slides. If that car hadn't stopped, he would have died right in front of me. And so I'm watching this guy on this skateboard, no helmet, going too fast, on the wrong side of the road, down the hill. And here's what came out of my mouth. I saw this guy and I said, people are idiots. Right? I didn't, I didn't like think it through. I wasn't like weighing it. It just sort of came out of me like, ugh, people, right? People are foolish. There's so much folly. People are idiots. But I, I will confess to you that even as I was prepping this message, what, what I also recognized in that moment was that when I say, and if you've ever said that or you've ever felt it, when I say people are idiots, what I usually mean is everybody but me, right? I wouldn't ride on that skateboard. If I did, I'd put on a helmet. Actually, I probably would have fallen down much earlier, right? Do you ever have that sentiment that looks at your fellow man or that looks at your king or that looks at your wife or that looks at your, your coworkers and says, people are idiots, I think part of what Kohelet is reminding us here is that it isn't them, it's us. And it probably doesn't make you feel good to hear me say it, but the reality is that this can be, um, it can be a really important thing for us to grab. One of the dangers in sort of recognizing a humble solidarity in the brokenness and the folly of your fellow man is that it can sort of feel like the ground comes out from underneath you. You know what I mean? You can start to feel like there's no place to stand because uh, you can chase wisdom and you can learn all kinds of things and you can have all kinds of experiences, but the reality is a little bit of folly spoils the batch. And so you think like, why even bother, right? It's all, it's all Hevel, which is exactly how Kohelet feels. But like I've done in every previous message out of Ecclesiastes, I want to remind you, if you're feeling destabilized, if you're feeling like the ground underneath you has become sinking sand, I want to remind you of how Jesus answers the sentiment of Kohelet. Because remember, Kohelet, his opinions and his perceptions are not contested in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the last chapter, we will see that the writer will come back and he will not make a critique of what Kohelet has said. They just sit there. But what Kohelet didn't have that we have is the ability to hear what Jesus says about all of this. So let me remind you, if you're feeling destabilized by the, the greater weight of foolishness in your life and the life of others, 
This is Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. This is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied not too long ago. Jesus says this in Matthew seven twenty four. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount says this, there is a way to live with wisdom and it's not to do things your way. You know why? Because my way is, is saturated with foolishness because I'm a broken guy and so are you or a girl, right? We are busted. Jesus says there is a way for you to build your life on something firm, a firm foundation. There is a way to live with wisdom and it doesn't come from following your own ideas. What it comes from is listening to what I have said and doing it. Jesus himself tells us that there is a folly-proof wisdom that is available to us and that folly-proof wisdom is to hear Jesus and obey him. He is the solid foundation we can build our lives on. He is the place where we can find folly-proof wisdom. You can't find it within yourself. You can't find it in the writings of the philosophers. You can't find it in the writings of the theologians. You can't find it in the musings of a local pastor, right? You cannot find folly-proof wisdom in me or any other human being because we're all the same. Where you can find folly-proof wisdom is in the, the heart and the speech and the actions of the Lord Jesus. And he says, if you hear what I've said and you do it, you can build your life on something solid, like a wise man. Like a wise man, you can build your life on something that is not destabilized by folly because Jesus is not broken, because Jesus is not foolish, because there is no sin, right? First Corinthians will say something similar about our foolishness, right? First Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Remember that the reason that the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees hated Jesus so much is that he didn't fit their idea of what a Messiah was supposed to be. A Messiah who comes and washes feet, or even worse, a Messiah that allows himself to be nailed to the cross as a criminal. It didn't fit any of their ideas. Their wisdom said no. And yet what Jesus does is he says, your wisdom is busted, but mine isn't. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Right? He says, look, you're living in a time in which the days are evil, right? There's foolishness seeping into every kind of wisdom you might collect. But there is a way to walk as one who is wise. And he's going to say the same thing Jesus said of himself. Live according to the will of the Lord. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, look, if you live according to your way of thinking, if you live according to your wisdom, your wisdom is going to get outweighed every time with your foolishness. Whether it's chasing debauchery or drunkenness or selfishness or greed or gluttony or whatever, it's always going to be soiled. But instead, live according to the will of the Lord. Who's that? Well, that's Jesus. And what's the will of the Lord? No self-indulgence, but rather self-sacrifice. Spirit-filled, worshipful, grateful, and submissive to others in reverence to Christ. That's the will of the Lord. That's a way to live in a world where at any given moment, your foolishness will come on display and so will mine. We live in a world where wisdom is valuable, but there is a greater weight to foolishness. And because we're broken, that is rearing its head all the time. Where can we find a stable ground? How can we move forward without discouragement or cynicism? The way we move forward is once again, this will be no surprise to you. The way we move forward is to look at Jesus. To allow the Lord Jesus to be revealed to us. To allow the Lord Jesus to be revealed in us. So that by God's grace, the Lord Jesus will be revealed by us. In the streets, in the neighborhoods, in the workplaces where we go. That it won't be our foolishness on display. But it will be the wisdom of God revealed in Christ. That's where we find stable ground. Kohelet says, wisdom's good, but you can't hold on to it yourself. We're busted in every category. And Jesus answers and says, I got wisdom for you. And he says the same to us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would, um, that you would help us to take a path towards hope and a path towards optimism and joy in recognizing that we can build our lives upon you and your wisdom. Will you help us to avoid the discouragement and the cynicism and even some of the frustration that Kohelet feels when he looks at the foolishness in the world around him and he sees the weight of it in every area of culture? Will you help us to recognize that our foolishness and the foolishness of others and the foolishness even just of living in a broken world doesn't need to overwhelm us because we can look to you and we can live a life of reverence to God in service to one another no self-indulgence, but rather self-sacrifice. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.